You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to episode one of the Mario Gamer podcast. Thank you for all the support and kind words about our pilot episode. We're going to try and make this a regular thing so I hope you enjoy. Now coming to you from what passes for a blazing hot summer's day here on the south coast of the UK. I'm Pete Davison of MoeGamer.net and joining me once again is Chris Kasky from MrGilderPixels.com. Hi Chris, how are you doing? Good Pete, how are you today? Yeah, not too bad. Warm, very warm. Bit sweaty, but less of that. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll be following the same format as last time with a three-segment show. First up, we'll be talking a bit about recent happenings in gaming, then chatting about the games we've been enjoying and perhaps not enjoying so much recently. And finally, we'll get on to our main topic for the episode. So more on that later. Um, so, Chris, you've got a number of news stories lined up for us to discuss, so bring them on. Yeah, it's been fairly eventful since the last episode. Um, I think the number one biggest piece of news to come out of the last two weeks is that the current acting president of Nintendo, Tatsumi Kimishima, has announced his retirement, which um, is a little bit jarring, obviously, because uh, Kimishima took over after a while is passing, but I feel like he hasn't been active president for too long. Um, perhaps it's due to his age and he's simply prepared for retirement. There doesn't seem to be any kind of shaky business things going on forcing him out or anything. Um, but it just came as a surprise because obviously the Switch has been so successful. And hmm. I think many people would say that Nintendo's had almost a complete turnaround since he oh, kind totally. of took the helm. Um, taking over for him is a younger fellow uh, by the name of Shintaro Furukawa, um, who I think for a lot of people is probably a bit of a, a no-name. I certainly wasn't familiar with him until I heard his name this week for the first time. He apparently came up from kind of the bottom, and one of his great credits was that he is was for one time in charge of some some dealings over at Nintendo of Europe, and I guess he is the man who's kind of given credit for a lot of the original Wii's high level of success, uh, specifically in Germany. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of people talking about um, his credentials, what he's done, and what's interesting about what he might bring to the table. Um, one of the things I thought was perhaps most interesting is that he will be the first acting president of Nintendo who is younger than um, Nintendo and their presence as a game maker. Yeah, uh, he was he was like three or four when the Famicom came out in Japan. So his perception of Nintendo's identity is one wrapped up in Nintendo as a game maker as opposed mm. to their long-term transformation from a toy maker and a Hanafuda card manufacturer into a game maker. So he's younger than the Japanese video game scene, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Um, what this, this story makes me think of is I, I, I find myself wondering if Kimishima was brought in just to sort of try and turn Nintendo around and, and the intention was always for him to, to sort of do that and then pass on the baton to someone else. I wonder if that was the intention behind it. But uh, yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like this this new guy has got some uh, some interesting things up his sleeve. And I think Nintendo in general is interesting to look at at the moment because they've undergone a hell of a lot of changes over the course of the last decade or so in particular. Um, just recently I've been watching back on some old videos from people like uh, gaming historian and so on and you look at um sort of the 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 8 and 16 bit era of nintendo of america in particular when they were 
even more keen to kind of cultivate that family-friendly um, perception that is still associated with them today. And then you look at the Nintendo of today with the Switch getting supported by a lot of Japanese developers with perhaps some more sort of mature-themed games coming to it. I mean, like, who would have thought we'd see Galgun 2 on a Nintendo console a year or two back, for example? Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what what, if anything, he if anything new he brings to the table and how he's going to direct Nintendo going forward because they've, they've definitely got a good thing going on with the Switch right now. Yeah, he, he has said that he wants to do uh, focus quite a bit on developing Nintendo's mobile business, which, I mean, yeah, oh no, mobile, but, I mean, Nintendo's specific approach to mobile has been inoffensive so far. Yeah. And um, they showed pretty much in lockstep with his announcement um, that he would be taking over the presidency um all that new news about Nintendo's um, continued partnership with DNA or Dina or however you're supposed to pronounce that, that mobile yeah. game company, uh, and that new action RPG that they announced, Dragalia Lost, which, once again, it's a mobile game, so it probably won't be for me because I hate touchscreen controls, mm. but it looks, you know, it's a cute, colorful, overhead action RPG. Like, it looks like it will actually be a game that happens to be on mobile and not yeah. a mobile game. Is that the one they're doing with side games? Yes. 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 So, so, so I mean, side games are huge at the minute. I mean, Grand Blue Fantasy has been such a huge phenomenon for them. It, I mean, it's it's kind of a scoop for Nintendo to be able to work with them, I guess, because they've got a huge customer base who are willing to do things. Fire Emblem Heroes has been a pretty big success for them as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I mean, I was I've had mixed feelings about the whole Nintendo on mobile thing for the last few years, partly because. A lot of people are arguing in favor of sort of Nintendo ditching hardware completely and going fully mobile, and that would have been awful. But I think what they're doing at the moment with these games that sort of support their core experiences is is really interesting. And yeah, as you say, inoffensive. So I, I have no complaints with what they're doing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's going to be able to produce a mobile game that I finally might want to play, it's it's going to be it's going to be <laughs> Nintendo. So. Uh... Yeah, what else do I have on the docket here? Uh, SNK Heroines, um, which I know you've been keen on getting, yes. um, has announced two new characters, um, Zarina and Sylvie, which are actually both new characters from the most recent King of Fighters, King of Fighters 14. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was really cool that they're tying in two of the new characters in to go with all the um, classic characters. They both have really interesting designs. Um, Zarina is a capoeira character, um, so to see her in movements really neat, she has cool moves. Um, Sylvie Paula Paula is a bizarro, is the bizarro character they introduced for King (laughs) of Fighters 14, who's, like, kind of playing off, like, J-pop plus magical girls stereotypes combined. Well, I I found my main already. Yeah, she's, (laughs) she's, she's weird. Um... She's based on a, a J-pop star from that's popular. Uh, I just can't remember her name. It's something Pamu Pamu. Oh, Kerry uh, Pamu Pamu. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. it. And she's known for like her crazy outfits and style. So Sylvie Paula Paula is, is based on her, and she has a you know, weird eyeball sticking out of her hair and stuff. She's just great. And um, you know, SNK Heroine's whole thing is the the customizability and the alternate costumes. They've already showed like. A goofy maid costume for her and stuff so it, it's it's just cool to see some of their new characters introduced to this game which was ostensibly mostly about classic characters 
because um, Kingdom Fighters 14 was great. So I like hmm. that they're making efforts to continue to make sure the new characters they introduce as part of their new games become part of the classic SNK kind of franchise. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, a game like SNK Heroines is ideally placed to be a sort of cross-promotional game, really, isn't it? With with sort of the, the opportunity to combine cast members from from the past and today and so yeah as you say it's great to see these new characters in and i think i i don't know snk's fighting games really well enough to to comment too much on them but it's it, it seems like it's going to be a good way to start getting to know some of these characters and then you can maybe explore them a bit further in some of the other games and so on so i'm looking forward to the game generally because it sounds like it's being specifically designed to get people into fighting games and as as we've discussed before i've I mean, I've I've enjoyed a bunch of fighting games in the past, but I've never really got super into them because a lot of them these days are very very complicated, and there's lots of systems to learn and things They're like timings and yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it yeah, it's something that I think would be interesting to learn, and and games like Guilty Gear and stuff have these really good tutorial systems now that teach you things. But I find in a lot of cases it it requires a lot a lot of practice of sort of all sorts of quite advanced techniques before you can even become vaguely competitive but yeah snk heroin sounds like it's being designed to be a bit more sort of um sort of instant gratification i'm sure there'll be some depth to it as well but it's sure it, it, it's it sounds like the idea behind it is to is to get people into it as soon as possible and my whole thing is that um you know i, I like fighting games well not just fighting games but any video game really that kind of follows the easy to pick up hard to master mm. like dichotomy so um, that looks like where SNK Heroines is headed, you know, as opposed to something like Street Fighter, which these days I find almost impossible to even pick up. Yeah. You, you, you can't really do anything cool in modern Street Fighter unless you pick a guy and, like, master that guy. Yeah. And, I, and my approach to fighting games is, like, I like to pick random. I like to just have fun because my engagement with fighting games is more from an artistic perspective. I yeah. kind of I kind of play them as like I like character design. Fighting games give me a game where I can see design and animation for thirty different characters. So yeah. like fight, fighting games for me are more I'm more about exploring them from like an artistic perspective than I am from a competitive perspective. So when fighting games take on this hardcore identity, it's an immediate turn off to me. So yeah. heroines looks like it's kind of a fighting game for guys like you and me yes definitely yeah i was gonna say that sounds exactly like how i approach fighting games as well I, right back to the days of sort of street fighter 2 and someone there was never really one character i was good at i would just sort of pick between them based on what my mood was at the time and what what i felt like doing and i mean i wasn't very good with any of them but i i feel like i had more fun than i would have done if i'd just picked say ryu all the time sure sure exactly all right what else do i have uh Cyvarier delta Mm. Uh, yeah, Cyber Delta is coming westward on both the PS4 and Switch, uh, courtesy of Dispatch Games. Um, if folks are unfamiliar with Dispatch Games, they're kind of an up-and-comer in the kind of niche publishing scene, and they have a strong focus on uh, arcade, Japanese arcade style stuff. So they were responsible for the publication of uh, Soldom, that puzzle game that you really liked. Um, and they're also handling the upcoming new version of Penguin Wars, um, mm -hmm. so also very arcadey. Cyvarier, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's a shoot 'em up, a vertical shoot 'em up franchise um, with three entries. Cyvarier um, Delta is an enhanced version of the third one. 
Siberia uh, 2, The Will to Fabricate, was probably my favorite shooter on the Dreamcast. Um, not just because you got to be a cool mecha, but the entire system <laughs> in the Siberia games is cool. Um, yeah. By rotating your control stick, you uh, you change your ship into doing a barrel roll maneuver, which yes. alters its firing pattern. And as long as you keep that movement present, you keep being able to maintain that pattern. And then you, by grazing bullets, getting like, getting close to them, there'll be a visual cue, and your ship actually levels up and becomes more powerful by you playing chicken with bullets instead of picking up power-ups. So yeah. it's really an interesting system uh, in, in that series. So very much looking forward to the new one. Yes, I am too. I mean, I, I, I picked up the, the PS2 version a while back, which has the, the original version of Cyvaria Revision, which I think is what Delta's based on, isn't it? Am I getting that right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, re- revision is sort of quite quite similar to the first one in terms of presentation and structure, but it does things like it sort of accelerates the leveling curve for the ship, and it sort of has a a much faster pace all round. And yeah, it was it's a really enjoyable shoot 'em up on the on the PS2. So having it sort of on the go on the Switch and in HD and all that sort of thing will be great. So it's it's a really I think under-recognized shoot 'em up that uh, it will be good to see getting a wider audience. And yeah, alongside that, I just want to give some love to Dispatch Games as well because they're they're bringing out some really interesting stuff, and I think they're really going to be one to watch in uh, the next few years. Yeah, I can't remember the exact details, but I was reading, kind of digging into their past a little bit, like who they are, and um, they are a publishing division of a company in Japan that goes by the name City Connection. Yes. And they own um, the entire back catalog for, uh, I can't remember who it is. It might be Chemco or, oh, it's going to drive me nuts now. I can't remember who it is. Is it Jalico's? Yeah, Jalico. Yeah, Jalico. Yeah, so they, they own the rights to Jalico's entire back catalog. So it seems like they might actually do some interesting stuff with that, as opposed to someone like Konami, who bought all of Hudson's back catalog and then did nothing with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Robland HD win. <laughs> Alright, so that's Cyvaria. Very excited. Considering pre-ordering that and Penguin Wars, both at the same time. Because Penguin Wars looks like it's going to be a really good multiplayer good time. Yes, I well, didn't know much about that beforehand, but uh, a, a few people who were making excited noises about it and uh, I had a look and it looked like fun. So yeah, I'll probably pick that up as well. I'd never played any of the originals or anything, but just just from what I've seen of the new one, it looks quite good. All right, uh, here's some news for you, Pete. Uh, we got finally our first direct screenshots of the new um, 2D Neptunia game, Brave Neptunia, um, which is kind of the controversial one because it's being developed by a Quebec-based studio in the West. Um, these screenshots are pretty interesting to me, mainly because... I was expecting kind of a pure side-scroller based on some of the original descriptions, but what it looks like we're getting is Valkyria Profile Neptunia Edition. Yes, yes, um, a lot of people have said that. So this combat system appears to be the classic Valky- Valkyrie Profile mold. You know, you've got four characters all mapped to square, circle, X, and triangle on the right-hand side of the screen for these battle sequences. So i was expecting more of a metroidvania so it's very interesting to see that what we're actually getting is a 2d game with sequence based combat Mm. yeah i'm i'm very up for this i mean it looks great and um i I think the i don't think there's too much controversy over it because i think most people recognize that um idea factory and compile heart are still sort of retaining 
creative control over it and they're still writing it and so on it's just it just happens to be developed by um this company artisan studio and i i think it's a good choice for neptune because neptune has always had wonderful 2d art in there from uh Tsunoko. Mm-hmm. and the, the the polygon graphics have have always adapted that quite nicely but having it having like a full 2d game based on that with um sort of proper side scrolling and so on and a lot of those canadian studios have really proven their chops at sort of 2d games over the last few years when you think back to things like um like the the recent rayman game i say recent they came out ages ago now didn't they but uh, <laughs> the the recent ish rayman games and mm-hmm. um and that sort of thing so yeah it, it seems like a good fit to me and i'm i'm certainly excited for it but then i like anything neptunia as you know yeah so. well for, for <laughs> someone for someone like me whose interest in neptunia isn't as quite as strong as you is like i like it but i've never really invested heavily in it because the, the games always kind of appeared a little too samey to me mm-hmm. I, you know i put about 80 hours into neptunia rebirth one on the vita really enjoyed it but then i didn't really feel the need to go further with it and, play, course, yeah. and play more of them really liked the characters really liked everything about it but i just had other stuff i wanted to play mm, um, sure so this new one looks so in tune with what I like that this might be, this is probably the Neptunia to bring me back into the fold and get me to buy a Neptunia game again. So I'm really yes. excited for it. Yes, I remember seeing this announced and thinking, yes, this is this is for Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty thrilled about it. Uh, I had one more thing. Um, I don't know if I can speak as much to this as some of the other stuff, but uh, I just an interesting game coming out from Chucklefish called Eastward that's coming to PCs. Um, it's just a really pretty pixel art, top-down, overhead, what appears to be an action RPG. Um, they're citing inspiration from Zelda, obviously, as well as Earthbound. Um, just a very strange-looking game with a really strong, very rich pixel art aesthetic that I would encourage people to check out. Yeah, it does look very nice, and the, the the Zelda comparisons are quite apt, really, because I think things like sort of the the color palette and stuff that's being used is quite similar to that seen in uh, Link to the Past, in particular. Yeah, it's very uh, muted. Yeah, and the the sprites have got that sort of black outline thing going on from Earthbound, but it, I actually like the look of the sprites a bit more than they do the ones from Earthbound. The Earthbound sprites I've always found a bit a bit simplistic for me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, these ones look like they've got a bit more detail about them, so. Yeah, as you say, it's hard to hard to say much from from screenshots and a and a trailer, but uh, certainly one to watch. Chucklefish have done some interesting stuff in the past. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Starbound as a game, but um, I certainly appreciated its presentation. It had mm-hmm. it had some yeah. really nice pixel art and so on. I just I just didn't really enjoy playing it very much, but I, I appreciated what it was doing from a, a sort of design perspective. Certainly. Sure, sure. Yeah, like I said. I- I don't even know if I want to like this game when it comes out, but I think it's really I think it's really pretty, and I think the trailer is really stylish, and it's, it's worth keeping an eye out on. Um, Chucklefish have been, you know, they started as a developer, but now you know they're also functioning as kind of an advocate and a publisher for a lot of these kind of pixely indie games. And hmm. It's it's nice to have seen them take their success from something like Starbound and and kind of pay that back and kind of get involved in making sure more of the type of games they're interested in find their way to an audience. Hmm. So I, I appreciate the work they're doing. Yeah, one to watch, definitely. Okay, anything else you'd like to bring up? No, I think that's everything I had for this week. All right, brilliant. Okay, so that is the news for this episode then. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about what we've been playing recently. 
Welcome back. So in this second segment, as with last time, we're going to talk a little bit about the things we've been playing recently, things we've been enjoying, and maybe some of the things we haven't been enjoying quite so much too. So uh, do you want to kick us off, Chris? Uh, sure. Uh, I haven't had much time to play games over the past two weeks. Uh, I'll start positive. Um, I managed to grab a copy of the Wipeout Omega Collection on oh, PS4 yeah. for, for really cheap, and uh, it is really, really good. Um, Wipeout's kind of one of those series that sits in a weird place for me because I'm absolutely terrible at Wipeout. I don't understand (laughs) Wipeout. My brain doesn't move fast enough to comprehend Wipeout. But just, it's so cool. Like, it's it's fun to play because of how fast it is and how the music is fantastic. The designs are all out of this world. So, like... I'm really having fun ramming my head against the wall, getting nowhere and wipe out, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's worth it. And for those who are unfamiliar with the Omega collection on PS4, it's a really good buy because what you get is the entirety of the Vita game, 2048, fully remastered, and the entirety of Wipeout HD and Wipeout HD Fury, which were the two digital-only games on the PS3. So you get all three of those complete games remastered on the PS4, and it's an opportunity, A, if you're a collector like me, to own HD and HD Fury physically, and just to just have this beautiful compilation with hours and hours worth of content on it. It's fantastic. Hmm. Am I right in thinking they patched in VR support recently as well? They did, and I would argue that it's probably the single strongest argument for PSVR. It's nice. I've not had much time to play with PSVR. I don't have it myself. My, my good friend does. But it's the first thing I've played on PSVR where it felt like it wasn't a stupid gimmick, and this is just yeah. a really this is just a really cool game that happens to support VR. Mm. Like it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was really, really good. Yeah, oh, that's cool for sure. Now, yeah, I've I've got a PSVR, and I've I've played a few good games on it. There's um, Jeff Minter's game on on PS4 that I, the name escapes me at the minute. Um, no, I I can't remember. Um, that's that's quite a good one that uses it quite effectively and then there was um namco's uh, summer lesson as well that was that was pretty good but yeah it'll be good to have something that's uh, that sort of really uses it effectively yeah it's worth the investment if you have the vr i mean it's not the whole game you get i think it's just a selection of tracks and like two right. vehicles that are compatible but okay it's uh it's it's i mean the game is incredible and then mm. you get then you get the bonus of having some vr compatibility along with it so it's it's quite worth it Oh, that's cool. It sounds a little bit like uh, how Ubisoft handled Trackmania on PS4 then, because that had a specific VR mode with some tracks that were specially designed, and they they sort of changed up the game system a bit in that, in that you were sort of... Um, it was still third person, but you were sort of um, looking around and controlling the camera with your head, so... Oh, okay. Um, so the tracks were designed in such a way that as you turned around corners, you'd actually have to sort of look around the corner to keep your car in view and that sort of thing. Oh, that's neat. 
so that was a really interesting way of handling it and they sort of mixed it up a little bit and in a few levels with sort of one that made it look like you were driving a remote control car and all that sort of thing so yeah it's it's interesting to see sort of different takes on vr rather than just doing the first person thing although that that has its appeals too certainly yeah wipeout just does the classic first person thing but what's what's cool is if you're playing the standard modes in wipeout um and you put it in the first person camera viewpoint it's just a, a straight first person camera view you know there's right. no there's nothing in your periphery right. it's just it's just direct first person camera but in the vr mode on wipeout they've specifically created entire cockpits oh wow That's so cool. you're you're not just you know, rushing through the track with a first-person camera, you're literally looking at it as if you're piloting the vehicle. Like you can look, you can look down, and there's a full pilot's body, like in the seat. Like you could look down at your digital legs, That's <laughs> and your digital hands holding like the throttle, and so they, they really went like all out with it. Yeah, that's good. I'm I'm, I'm glad they've done that. Um, have you played um, Super Stardust in VR at all? No, I haven't. The 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 VR specific mode in that does that kind of thing because so, uh, like you know how Super Stardust plays normally from that sort of top down sort of over a globe perspective and so on. In, mm-hmm. in the in the VR mode, you're actually inside the vehicle, and there's a cockpit around you and stuff, and you have to aim your guns by looking up and looking at things and pressing the fire button and so on. So yeah, it's uh, it's uh, always always interesting when when they sort of go the extra mile to provide a unique vr experience rather than just something that you could do on your telly that just happens to be stereoscopic instead so yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool it's an it's an important way to take advantage of the technology because otherwise why bother yeah exactly all right shall i go yeah go for it excellent all right so um last week i talked briefly about galgun 2 because i just started it and uh, now i've kicked off this month's cover game coverage of it i've finished a single playthrough of it now um so i can talk in a bit more detail about it with uh, being slightly better informed about how it all works and so on so um yeah i've been really enjoying it so far um as i mentioned last time it's it's quite a different experience from the original game which i think is good because um Double Piece and the Jap- Japan-only original version, they were both quite similar in terms of how they were executed, whereas this one really sort of complements the other ones nicely so that they can, they can exist without making each other irrelevant, which I think is really nice. Yeah, it's great when sequels do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in this one, if, if you're not familiar, rather than sort of following a, um, a linear, multi-route visual novel-style story, you're given a bit more freedom. So you have this 20-day time limit in which uh, you are randomly selected by uh, Risu the Angel from the Angel Ring Corporation in heaven um, to meet her demon-busting quota because she hasn't been pulling her weight at work recently. Um, and so rather than the setup of the previous two games, which is you get shot by an incompetent angel and all girls suddenly want what you've got in your pants um in this case you're just presented with this uh, convenient piece of equipment called the pheromone goggles and the demon sweeper uh unfortunately the side effect of wearing the pheromone goggles is that uh you become irresistible to women so the uh the effect is the same just the setup is a bit different um yeah so over the course of these 20 days you get this uh, series of missions to play through uh, and there's uh, there's main story missions, there's side missions for the two main heroines, and then there's all these incidental missions for the other members of the cast. And I think there's quite a quite a huge number of them all together. With the sort of eventual aim, if you want 100 percent, the game is sort of collecting all the phone numbers for the whole cast, seeing all the different endings, and all that sort of thing. So 
yeah there's um there's a nice amount of variety to it it's not just shooting levels now there's these sort of scavenger hunt levels where you've got to actually look around and look inside things and find hidden objects now and there's defense missions and um there's a few boss fights not quite as many as in double piece uh but a few of those and uh then there's this sort of interaction system with the girls as well where you can sort of hang out with them and you can give them gifts to make them like you more and that makes them say different things and you can get them to do the various animations at you and then you can uh, you can uh, shoot the demons out of their body until their clothes explode so oh, you know okay <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of fun it's a it's a very silly game it's not trying to say anything particularly deep or meaningful but uh it is what it is it plays well it's got that sort of indie creates polish all over it and yeah i'm having a blast with it yeah i'd love the opportunity to play it 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 doesn't sound like a game that i would love enough to like own and put tens of hours into but Mm, it it, it sounds so unique um it definitely sounds like it's made more improvements toward being the kind of game i want to play as opposed to the first one the first one seemed very much like it was just light gun plus visual novel yeah, and, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, and only fifty percent of that formula is something I'm interested in. <laughs> um, so the first one, the new one, sounds like it's it's a bit more gamey. Even if that gaminess takes a turn towards kind of sim, like dating sim stuff, I'm 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 more okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that time management, character relationship management stuff, as long as it has the gaminess. Yeah, I, I mean, the the emphasis is very much on the game side of things. Cause the, the relationship stuff is is even simpler than it was in, in Double Piece, for example. So you don't have sort of your personality stats to worry about anymore. They're literally, the only thing you have to do to make a girl like you is fill her up with sugar. So <laughs> if only it was so simple in real life. Eh? But um, yeah, so so it's it, it sort of keeps the focus on the game side of things. So, and it's almost sort of sandboxy in a weird sort of way i mean not in the sense that you can walk around freely and and do stuff exactly as you want but it's it's kind of a sort of playground where that 20 days is plenty of time to do everything you need to do so there's there's also plenty of time to just play around and hang out with the girls and do things and pick your favorite and so on so it's it's a game designed to be played with and experimented with rather than just something that you you just try and finish as quickly as possible now it's good to hear that it's uh not too much of a burden to have that time limit because that's something that for me is a bit of a kryptonite in games like yeah yeah but when i when i eat when i hear games have like a time limit like that I, I usually pretty much shy away from them it's one of the biggest reasons that i wasn't fond of um the knights of azure games i don't i didn't they didn't click with me because i always felt anxious and it's uh pretty much the only game that i really like that has that kind of mechanic is the original valkyrie profile but mm-hmm. like it, it turned me off of like the last many Atelier games from Gus yeah. because I just don't even even if there's more than enough time like even if it's not an issue and it's just kind of there to be there like I find that having it hang over my head creates so much anxiety and I question every gameplay decision I make that I, I end up not enjoying <laughs> myself. Yeah. So glad to hear that it's not not a kind of a pressure cooker kind of situation with the time no no not at all and i mean it, it it explicitly tells you when you've done the thing you need to do to get a particular ending so if you want to when when you've done the relevant thing you can just skip straight to the last day and see that ending so oh, that's there's, cool so there's no obligation to sort of play through the full 20 days every time if, if you say complete one of the side stories early or something like that so okay and it's worth noting you can't get everything in a single playthrough either. It's, it's sort of the order you do things is important. So there's about, I think, five or six different endings altogether. 
um, and and the order in which you do various steps in the main and side stories depends which of the endings you'll see at, um, at, at the conclusion of a playthrough. So there's plenty of replay value there as well. That's neat. I like stuff like that as long as an individual playthrough doesn't take too long. No, no, not at all. Alright, well, uh, is that it for Galgon? That is for now, yes. Yeah, so you're, and that's your game of the month, right? On your it site, is, abso your cover absolutely. Game. Yeah, so if you check it out, you'll find out a bit more about how it plays, uh, the, the mechanics of it, the sort of setting of it. The, the next article we'll be writing about it on the, at the uh, sort of time we're recording is we'll be looking at what I just mentioned, the sort of sandbox approach to it and how it, how it creates a sort of surprisingly believable world with relatively limited resources and that's that's something that the series has always been quite good at so are you going to be focusing on more of the adorable characters for further waifu wednesdays throughout the month of may i'm sure that can be arranged <laughs> <laughs> the first one was perfect so yes all right well uh okay so i started positive so now I'll go negative. So hey. I, I, I hate it. <laughs> I, hate, I, hate, I hate having to do this because I really wanted to like this game. Uh, so I got a chance yesterday to play the new God of War, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. be it's the best game of 2018, 100s across the board, 10 out of 10. Obviously, doing things off. that games have never done before. Setting off, no. Okay, so I really wanted to like God of War. Um, so I don't like... <laughs> to be negative on it <laughs> but i absolutely hated it right um because here's what the new god of war did it took everything that was unique and special about the old god of war games and it took them away and then it just made last of us with an axe right and i don't want to play last of us with an axe mm -hmm. um it's really really hard to get into uh, mainly because the combat is atrocious. Um, what was so amazing about the original God of War games, and you know, you you can get on me all you want about how like the narratives were juvenile, blah blah blah, toxic masculinity, blah blah yeah. blah. But what the original God of War games did really well was they told an interesting linear story and fused them with combat that was snappy and fun and almost arcadey. Right. So what? the new god of war did was it kind of takes a little bit of resident evil 4 which is great mm -hmm. but then it also kind of takes a little bit of dark souls which doesn't belong in my god of war no and then so it takes the methodical approach of like almost like a dark souls kind of thing where you have to be very careful about your back steps and your hits matter a lot and you're and you're relatively fragile which was also disappointing like i couldn't believe how fragile kratos is in that game in this new game um with the really close up against your back third person camera that like resident evil 4 created way back in the day yeah but but it puts you in these combat situations that are a lot alike the combat situations of the original god of war so they put you in these arenas they fill it with like six or ten little garbage enemies and then like a big troll and it's like survive this arena but because the camera is so focused in on your back and you're super fragile there's dude there's like three dudes behind you hurling fireballs and plucking at your back with arrows so by the time you you turn your giant tank body around and see what the heck is going on you you've already you're already down to like one eighth of your health bar 
Yeah. Like, it's really unintuitive. And it's like, do you want to play a melee action game where your attacks are on the triggers? Because mm, no. I, I don't. <laughs> like, it's okay in Dark Souls, because Dark Souls' entire approach to combat is designed around enemy management and methodology. And when you attack in a Dark Souls or Bloodborne or what have you, like, every time you pull that trigger is extre extremely deliberate. Yeah, like you've created or found an opening, and now you pull that trigger to strike. But in God of War, you're doing like combos, like weak, 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 strong, and that's on right, R one, R one, and L two. So you're like you're like trying to jam combat combos out using the triggers, and I'm like, this is not a racing game. Like, why why is my primary method of control on R one and R two? Like, there's some really messed up design decisions. And it yeah. really and it really just feels like every other triple A game now. How can we strip out fun mechanics and make it all about telling a linear story? Right. It, the, the emphasis it's classic Western. Lumbering Western game, right? The combat is not snappy and responsive, and everything's been funneled into telling a story, characters that never shut up, and <laughs> and just how do I walk from point A to point B in beautiful settings? So yeah. If that's all you care about, this game is gorgeous. But like the combat is such a disappointment coming coming from a series that I originally respected so much for snappy, fun combat that like I'm just speechless over how much I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, you, what you've described there, you've you've described all of the things that I thought I had unfairly assumed about the game when I first saw it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just hearing that they're all true, just. Uh, I I don't know if it makes me sad because I've never been really into God of War, but it it makes me a bit sad for those people who are really into the old games and were maybe expecting something a bit more along those lines, and instead they're getting this. But yeah, there, a lot of those things you describe are things that really bug me with a, a a lot of particularly Western games today. The the sort of really heavy controls is one thing that really puts me off a game. It's what put me off Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, just because you, your character, they just can't fucking turn around. Yeah. So like, mm -hmm. I push right. I want to go right. I don't want to. I don't want this beautifully animated animation of them sort of gradually turning around to the right and twisting their body beautifully. But you know, I mean, it looks nice, but it, it sucks to play. I, um, I found I found Horizon a lot more palatable because uh, melee combat wasn't the focus. Yes, and also the camera doesn't suck in Horizon. Where God of War falls apart is melee combat and space management are the focus. Yeah. And, and that camera is so zoomed in on your back that you can't figure out what's going on. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that perspective generally. Like I, I, I think Gears of War was the first time I encountered it, and I've never really been a big fan of it just because it, it feels too claustrophobic for me. And I mean, yeah. I, I can understand why it's used for sort of third-person shooters in particular, but like, for example, the the original The Witcher had the option to play in that mode and it sort of allowed you to really get down and sort of see things from a sort of human's eye perspective rather than an isometric perspective. But it, 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 it sort of melee combat and that kind of thing just doesn't play well from that perspective just because you, you need that spatial awareness and you just don't Correct. Yeah, good. I mean, good melee combat is all about space management. Yeah, that's the idea, and and just it fails when you can't see the space itself. Mm -hmm. Can we also talk about how people seem to think that throwing an object and it coming back to you is some sort of revolutionary thing in gameplay? 
because uh-huh. I've seen <laughs> I've seen this com I've seen this comment a lot of times recently from sort of game journalists and like, it's like oh yeah I love throwing the axe and it coming back to me. It's like have you ever played Zelda and thrown a boomerang? <laughs> I, 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 I will i will say this because like, there's lots of positive stuff to say about god of war 2 like I'm, uh-huh. I'm just i'm just being contrarian because everything i've read about it is like 10 out of 10 yeah but like throwing the axe is great <laughs> like, <laughs> they have one thing they did really well in that game but this is not revolutionary because this is something that every god of war did it's part of the reason i love god of war this is also something that blizzard did really well in diablo 3 like right. they have created a sense of kinetic impact yes with like every hit that is extremely satisfying because if you're in a p- place in god of war where you can actually manage the combat like you can still fight after you throw the axe. You just fist fight. Right. So, like, you'll see an archer up on a cliff. You'll throw the axe to take him out. Then you'll pummel the guy running at you with your fist, and then you'll summon the axe back. And there's something about, like, the loop of trying to do that in a way that, mm-hmm. like, is stylish that does feel really good. And, like, that axe feels heavy. Like, yeah. and, and it's very satisfying, like... The animation when it returns to you and you catch it again, like it makes you feel badass. Like that that yeah. actually is a really nice feature. But no, it's not like super revolutionary. Can you punch the skeletons out of things? Because if not, it will always be inferior to Diablo. I don't know if you can punch the skeletons out of things. I've, pu- <laughs> I've punched things that have looked like skeletons. Yes. No, I mean the barbarian in Diablo three could literally punch the skeletons out of things. So yeah, <laughs> that was that was my favourite thing. That sounds amazing. No, I actually never played a barbarian in Diablo. <laughs> anyway, anything more to say on God of War? No, I think that's about it. Like, I haven't given up on it entirely, but it's definitely yeah. like I will probably buy it for like fourteen ninety nine. Right. Just, just to experience the narrative because I'm a huge fan of Norse mythology. But like, yeah, I'm definitely not spending sixty bucks on it. I'm not sold on it mechanically. It's just not. No, fair play. enough. Fair enough. All right. Um. The only other thing I've really been playing recently that I'm sure you'll be up for talking about and being being getting back to positivity again is um, for my birthday, my wife got me Super Mario Odyssey. Oh, beautiful. Yes. What a wonderful game. What a wonderful game. Um, and quite a sort of unique feeling in, in, in Mario as well. If, if anything, it reminds me a bit of Mario 64 in the way that sort of the different stages are sort of little worlds and you go around and you, you find these moons and things, but just the way it's set up to encourage you to explore and find things and look at things and observe the environment and think, I wonder what that is. And if you go and look at it, it is something cool, always. If you see a little notch in a cliff face, you think, oh, I wonder if I can go in there. Yes, you can probably go in there and find some coins or a chest or a moon or something like that. It's just so beautifully designed and it's presented wonderfully and it just feels good to play. Yeah, I mean, what I love about Mario Odyssey is... um perhaps more so than many other Mario games, it really emphasizes that kind of Nintendo's alternate approach that I like to talk about often in that, you know, a lot of people want to talk about Nintendo and their comparison to other design houses. Like, what does Nintendo do compared to Sony or Microsoft or whatever? And what I've always emphasized to people is like, when Nintendo was at their best is when Nintendo stopped trying to make technology and, yeah. and starts trying to make toy boxes that just happen to be digital. And, like, what Mario Odyssey feels like more than anything is, like, the ultimate digital toy box. Every world you go into is this 
beautiful diorama full with interesting things to interact with. Every enemy transformation is a new toy for you to play with. And and so like, you know, I always kind of bristled when the game first came out and like some of the really hardcore game fanatics out there were complaining that there's basically no challenge in the game. If you're if you're playing Mario Odyssey looking for challenge and difficulty in the same vein as you played old Mario games, you're not approaching it on its own terms. No. Like Mario Odyssey is all about the joy of discovery and play, not yeah. challenge and frustration. It's just these beautiful dioramas that you can become a part of and explore at your own pace and interact with in new and interesting ways. Yeah, I I, I just I I really like the way the moons are handled. Just because if you think back to something like uh, like Mario 64, like get, getting a star was always a big deal. It was always like a, an important objective. You'd always defeated a boss or something or, or got to a, a difficult to reach location or so on. Whereas the, the moons in Mario Odyssey, it's, it's not that they're unimportant. It's that they reward some of these sort of more incidental things you might be doing as well. Yeah, like they reward your you, curiosity. Yeah, exactly. So, so like you see a cliff that looks like you you ought to be able to climb it or so on, but you can't quite reach it, and then you realise that sort of using one of the enemy abilities will help you to get up there. There'll be a moon waiting for you at the top as a reward for for you exploring that curiosity and playing with those different mechanics and experimenting. And it's yeah, like I say, it's 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 just an absolute joy to play. And it's as you say, it, it's not difficult, but it doesn't need to be difficult because there's just so much to do. If they made it difficult, as well as putting all this stuff in there, it it would kind of be fighting against itself. So it, it, it wants you to find all this stuff. It wants you to experiment and explore and go to all these places and play with all the enemy abilities and so on. And if it's just trying to be a, a ruthlessly difficult game, then people are just going to bounce off it. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it's a really, really lovely designed game. Yeah, I mean, there are times where I've playing mario odyssey and i've almost been unsettled by like the locations of certain moons because it's just like sometimes it feels like a get out of my head nintendo like, <laughs> like you know yes. what i mean like, it's almost like they were psychic yeah but like, no, there's, there's, how there's did a they know that, that thing would be interesting to me yeah, and there's a, there's a bunch of things like like I'm someone who is always very thorough in this sort of game. Like when I get into a new area, I will pan the camera around all over the place and look around and look behind the start point and stuff. And like Nintendo love hiding stuff behind the start point of areas, um, <laughs> and and just just that just sort of my gaming behavior getting rewarded by that with with someone who's obviously thought of how different people play games and how they approach this sort of thing. Yeah, Mario Odyssey does this really well. Another game that actually does this really well, surprisingly, is um, is Splatoon, of all things. Oh, yeah. Splat Splatoon's single-player mode actually has a surprising amount in common with Mario Odyssey in terms of um, how it encourages you to go a little bit off the beaten path and explore things. So Splatoon's levels are much more linear, linear than Mario Odyssey. They're very much sort of um, platforming and puzzle challenges. But there's um there's sort of two hidden objects in each level and they they hide them in the same way that they hide the moons in mario odyssey so they sort of like put them underneath platforms and behind things and sort of uh, encouraging you to go and look at things that look interesting that you might not um sort of think anything of if you're just trying to get through the level as quickly as possible so yeah i think that's that's a really important part of, of modern nintendo game design and yeah i love it yeah, I mean, they, they're just, they reward play, and they reward curiosity in, in the same way that a good toy does. And that's, yeah. and that's, that's a magic that no one has ever been able to capture in that, in that, that that's really, to me, the essence of Nintendo and their design yes. philosophy. 
Absolutely. And Mario Odyssey just has encapsulated that so perfectly. Like exactly when we needed it. Exactly when we needed to be reaffirmed that Nintendo knew what it was doing. Yeah. We got Mario Odyssey. Definitely. All right. Anything else you want to bring up? Yeah, I mean, just a little thing. Um, I, re I recently acquired a pristine copy of Grandstream Saga for the PS1 for really ah, cheap. Ah, yes. And yes. Uh, love it. I, I actually never played it before. Um, so f for those of you who are unfamiliar, Grandstream Saga is actually the first ever fully poly polygonal JRPG. It's the first JRPG ever made that didn't have 2D elements. Or pixel, mm -hmm. or pixel art graphics in any way, fully 3D characters and environments. Um, and it's actually by a development team by the name of Shade, but Shade is itself composed of all people from the former development team known as Quintet, which is famous for what's called the Heaven and Earth cycle uh, on mm -hmm. the Super Nintendo, which was Soul Blazer, uh, Illusion of Gaia, and Terranigma. Like, th three of the most highly regarded action RPGs on the Super Nintendo. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that in many ways, um, Grandstream Saga is basically the fourth game and concluding the Heaven and Earth Saga. So, really cool to finally have a chance to explore that game. Uh, never gotten to play it before. Um, it's really cool because in combat, um, you don't just, like Zelda style, you don't just have a sword attack and you hit enemies when you encounter them on the field. When you encounter enemies in the field, it kind of goes into a different camera angle spawns an arena around you and then you have like a highly technical duel with that enemy where you can dodge block do combos one-on-one uh, -on -one in these one-on-one -on -one fights uh, i've never really played a game that did anything like that and it's kind of mm. cool that this old game kind of took this unique approach to combat yeah i i, I actually did play this back in the day um uh, in sort of the the late 90s and so on um some friends and i at school we all discovered rpgs at around the same time with final fantasy 7 um one of my friends he then just proceeded to just repeatedly play final fantasy 7 over and over again but i thought mm, i want more of these um so i decided to pick up most of the jrpgs that came over here to europe which was by no means all of them i might add because europe we got fairly screwed particularly by square enix and so on but that's another story um but yeah grand steam saga is one of the ones that did come out over here and i picked it up because it looked interesting and sounded interesting and yeah i had a great time with it back in the day it was it was a, a really interesting game even back then uh, with as you say it was the first sort of fully 3d rpg with these fully realized worlds and so on um okay none of the characters have got faces but they they are interesting characters in their own right they're visually distinctive um, it had a, a pretty interesting story and as you say the combat was quite unlike anything that was around at the time certainly and there haven't been many RPGs that have done something similar since I, I, I really like that combat it's um, yeah as you say it's like having a, a, a technical duel with them and it's it's got a really satisfying feel of blocking attacks and sort of striking and um, I don't want to be the guy who says it's like Dark Souls but there's there's a certain a certain element of uh, of, uh, of DNA in common there, I think. With yeah. Sort well. of the, the the timing and so on. It um it, it yeah it, it when I I think of Dark Souls combat, one of one of the first things I thought of when I first played Dark Souls was this is a little bit like Grandstream Saga. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it, but it's but it's true. I mean, everyone um you know one of the most common ways people refer to combat in the Souls games is they call it the dance, quote unquote, because it's not yeah. just about the fighting; it's about learning to repost, learning to dodge learning to seek openings and grand that's basically what the combat in grand stream is all about i've yeah. I'm, I'm not terribly far in it but um i've just 
got my first axe. Um, so from what I understand, that's going to mix the combat up considerably, right? Because it's slower attack, double yes. double attack power. So now learning how to take advantage of that new timing is going to be really interesting. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying it. I had passed on the game when I was younger because, you know, I was in like my late teens or early 20s. And I didn't quite know as much about games as a business as I do now. And I didn't yeah. really know at the time the difference between developers and publishers. Um, right. And in the and I don't know about in your region, but in the states, uh, THQ published Grandstream Saga. Yeah. Um, and THQ, for the most part, published like terrible licensed games for the most yes. part in the United yes. States. So like, not me not understanding at the time the difference between a developer and a publisher. I said, oh, like an RPG from THQ. Like I want nothing to do with this. So like, <laughs> so like I didn't touch it back in the day. But then but you know, now. With the magic of the internet and reading, you know, I read a historical retrospective on Quintet, and then that that, that immediately set me off on a search to find a copy. So I'm very glad I picked it up. I'll probably be playing that off and on for the next couple of weeks. Mm. Good stuff. All right. Anything else? No, that's it for me. All right. Brilliant. Okay, we're going to take another short break then, and then we'll be back in with our main topic for the episode. So we'll see you shortly. Welcome back. We're into our third segment now where we're going to be talking about our main topic for the episode. And today we're going to talk about music. That's a pretty broad topic that we'll probably come back to quite frequently. So we thought we'd kind of pare the discussion down a little bit to a specific aspect of music, um, which is what I like to call the, the goosebump effect, which is sort of having uh, some sort of emotional connection with a piece of music, uh, in this case, games. Um, where you sort of hear a piece of music and it immediately makes the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or goosebumps on your arms or whatever because you've got such an emotional resonance with with the experience you had when you first heard that piece of music. Um, and I think that the, the first thing I want to bring up is actually from the most recent game we've covered on Moe Gamer, which was Blue Reflection, which had a really lovely soundtrack any, anyway. I talked a little bit about this last week. It's got a quite a strange combination of a very sort of um almost sort of uh, new agey blinky blocky piano and synthesizers and very gentle sounding music and then combined with these really powerful electronic bassy almost dubstep drum and bass things at times as well in the battle sequences and so on i was very surprised with the tracks that you sent me to listen to i mean because i'm not a huge fan of gust's games in recent history but i'm always a fan of the output of gust sound team like even yes. if i don't want to play a new gust game i'll at least go on youtube and listen to tracks of the music and um given the thematic elements of blue reflection i expected it to be pretty much like all piano like a yeah. con- like a hundred percent like plaintive piano music so like when it was plaintive piano music with drum and bass i was like this yeah. is real this is really cool like this is something <laughs> this is something totally unexpected i really like it 
yeah definitely I mean, it, it does some really interesting things with it throughout so i i mean i i did a full article on the music so go and read that if you want to find out more about it but basically it does things like it sort of associates particular instruments with particular characters so sort of the protagonist is the piano sound and then the two girls who hang out with her for the for the whole game that one of them is sort of a violin sound and the other one is a cello sound so all the battle themes they incorporate those elements um those instruments sort of intertwining with each other and they each get their own time to shine and if you if you sort of play it correctly then it sort of lines up nicely and everything looks nice as well as sounding nice um but as you say yeah so there's there's this sort of blinky blonky piano element and there's a really nice main theme that you hear on the title screen and the the finale for the whole game i don't want to spoil the details of it for those who are planning on playing it but the the music for that section was just astonishing it says um the, the the sort of basic concept of the overarching story of it is that um the protagonist becomes a magical girl to help fight off these creatures called sephiroth which are sort of giant monsters who are battling for supremacy over reality and so on and you defeat the last one and then of course there's a, a, a sort of last boss after that who's who's all like oh yeah you need to fight me now for reasons um but the the music for that is was just so sort of unexpected in terms of the way it started it's it it started with this wonderfully sort of emotional minimalist piece of piano music that gradually built up and all of the boss themes in that game are multi-phase as well so sort of you get the boss down to a particular um hit point threshold and, and the music will change um and it's it's normally sort of a sequence from sort of um it starts with the sort of um oh there's a big thing threatening you and then the second phase is like oh are we going to survive this so it sort of gets very aggressive and loud and that kind of thing and then the final segment of most of the boss themes is sort of like yes we're going to win this Mm -hmm. um and in blue reflections one that final phase is where they bring back that initial piano theme from the title screen oh beautiful (laughs) and it just i was just like i i I actually shouted out yes at the time there was no one around thankfully so my wife wouldn't take the piss out of me but yes that theme came in i was like yes they did it because that that is that is my favorite thing for um a sound team to do in their sort of finale music is is bring back the main theme of the Mm -hmm. the thing that they're bringing to a conclusion and blue reflection just did it so effectively just with the the narrative build-up before those final encounters of the game combined with that music it it, it just destroyed me <laughs> i i love stuff like that i i think in our, some of our prior discussions uh, you were telling me about the sequence before i said uh, the the end sequence of wild arms 2 is a lot yes. like that as well um it's kind of you you know that it does the classic like there's a final final boss but it's not really an actual fight you can lose kind of like the final Sephiroth fight at the end of ff7 like yeah it's a yes. fight it's a fight but like you you can't lose it you have to like try to lose it um and it plays this beautiful boss theme that incorporates like the entire light motif from like the opening theme and mm-hmm. and the whole time every time you attack it does a flashback to like one of the different towns in the game and like the people who you helped save in that town like 30 hours ago mm-hmm. and like them sending their like prayers and good wishes up to you and then like that charges your sword up for like the attack and like while the like main theme is playing with like twinkly piano in the background and you're just like weeping the entire time and it's like <laughs> oh the power of justice and it's like yeah it's i love that kind of stuff 
And I just say, I haven't played Wild Arms 2. I played the first one, but uh, I haven't played Wild Arms 2. But I'm literally getting goosebumps from you just describing that. Oh, right it's, it's totally, it's totally. Oh, because you're also like, you're fighting yourself. Oh, <laughs> so, of course. So like, or like, no, you're at your, I'm sorry, you're fighting the demon that's been possessing you the entire game. So right. like freeing yourself from like the great burden that has dominated you for the past 60 hours. Like it's, you got to play it. Wild Arms in general, but we can, I won't go off on Wild Arms because that got me in trouble in the last podcast. Me, me, <laughs> I used to do is bringing up Wild Arms in every episode because it is my favorite <laughs> RPG franchise. That's 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 fine. You're among friends here. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh uh, yeah, be 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 warned. I will look for opportunities to bring up Wild Arms. Excellent narrative devices. Pretty much whenever I can. Fine by me. Whenever someone's like, "What do you think Sony's going to announce at E3 this year?" It's like, if it's not Wild Arms Six, I don't care. <laughs> oh. It's never Wild Arms Six. It's never Wild Arms Six. No. It's a Wild anyway. Arms mobile game. No, wait, let's not get started on that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you had you had some specific examples, I know. So I did, I did. Um, so I mean, I think we're both. I mean, I don't perform music or understand how to make music in the same way you do, but I'm very much a music guy, um, and a lot of my emotional resonance with games is pretty much directly tied to to music. I, I listen to game music pretty much nine hours a day at work. Um, for me. Um, Okami is probably the best soundtrack ever written for, in, in like the medium of video game. Um, just Okami's entire thematic presentation artistically is obviously beautiful all around, but there's just something very specific about the way the music ties into the visual presentation in the game. Um, the best... Um, now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Okami, the whole game is presented in a Sumi-e Japanese painting style. Um, and the entire game's thematically based around um, Shinto. So the more you understand the Japanese Shinto faith, kind of the better your ability to understand the thematic elements of Okami are. And one of the key tenets of Shinto is understanding and revering nature and kind of the spiritual power of nature. Um, everything kind of has a spirit and a life that's kind of supposed to be respected. Um, so what you do as the goddess Amaterasu and Okami is um, you go into these giant Zelda-style fields and your ultimate goal is to kind of restore the beauty of nature by getting rid of like the demonic corruption. Um, so every big area of the map you reach 
has two different tracks, sometimes four. Um, so there's the corrupt demon possessed tracks, and then there's the like freed nature restored tracks. Um, so it's unbelievable like how emotive it can be when you are used to hearing like the sad like everything's dying here like demon possessed mm. field track and then once you free an area there's this beautiful um cinematic that plays with cherry blossoms raining down as the wolf runs across the field with like the, the, the green pastures like appearing behind her in her wake and it just comes in with the traditional japanese instruments playing so loud and like so triumphantly like i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it mm. it, it it's like the way the game has specifically tied the music and the back and forth of different styles of music to the, the nature themes of the game is always very strong with me. When I think about games that have made that tie well between their themes and the way music also circulates with the themes and the mechanics, like Okami is always at the top of the list for me. Yeah. It's actually been a good few years since I played Okami, and when I first played it, I wasn't overly familiar with um, with Shinto and so on. I, I had a sort of passive understanding of it from from what I could make out from the game. But having covered things like um, the visual novel Nino Kami that I did last year, um, I think it will be quite interesting to revisit that and, and, and see how my perspective on it is different. Because I, I mean, I loved Okami, but I think coming to it from an informed perspective will, will just make it all the more resonant. Yeah, I mean, Okami dropped um, when Okami first came out on the PS2. Came out in a very formative time in my life. I, I was in college at the time, and I was specifically taking a course on East Asian philosophy. Oh wow! So, yeah. so like, so like <laughs> when Okami came out, I was specifically studying Shinto at the time. So Perfect. it really was just the right timing for everything. So like, I was every theme and every piece of mythology that the game was touching on was like fresh in my mind so all of that just worked at the same time to like tie that game like into a tight bundle and like wedge it like firmly in my heart like i I love okami so much and and the musical profile of the game is very important part of that um and if you don't and people out there if you don't intend on ever playing it because it's quite a long game at least um go on youtube look up the soundtrack um particularly the track the sun rises that's like the main theme of the game and it's like i don't know it's hard for me to hear that without choking up sometimes it's it's so triumphant and and just tied unapologetically to the the strong japanese cultural influence that defines that game yeah
Alright, great. So, I mean, I've got a couple of other examples I want to talk about, but then they're both from sort of slightly different perspectives. Um, one I do want to bring up is uh, from the visual novel Fate's Day Night, which I thought actually had a surprisingly interesting soundtrack. A lot of visual novels do have good soundtracks that are, are worth listening to, and they often have good opening songs and things, because in many cases they, they're treated in terms of presentation and production very almost like anime um unsurprisingly because a lot of them are either adapted from anime or end up adapted into anime afterwards either way um but face day night soundtrack was was very interesting because it, in terms of melodies and stuff uh, it, it wasn't necessarily the most memorable thing but it had this this wonderful connection with your emotions and like um one of the most striking things that I found about it while I was playing it was that my wife couldn't sit in the room with me while I was playing it because the music made her too uncomfortable and I, hmm. I've that's that's not something I've I've seen happen before but the, the, the music made her it actually made her skin crawl it was it legitimately freaked her out like and, like like horror freak out like not emotionally uncomfortable like it was very it, or it was it, it was it was sort of a sense that just I don't know how familiar you are with Fate's Day Night but sort nah. of the, so, so, certainly the, the original visual novel has got this really sort of palpable sense of menace about it throughout okay. the whole thing um, so the the, the, the the whole concept of uh, you are this character who is a he's, he's a magus but he's not a very good one so he doesn't really know how to do things and he's he's thrown into this situation of this holy grail war with all these servants who are much more powerful than he is and, and the other masters who are controlling the other servants are way more powerful than he is so he's completely in over his head um and the music really reflects that sense of of him sort of being forced into this situation where he is almost beyond help in some cases there are a lot of situations in the game where the choices you make will lead to an immediate horrible horrible bad end um and you're very conscious of that all the way through you're very conscious of the fact that the the choices you are making are extremely important um some of them are going to be fatal some of them are going to end up with another character dying some some of them are going to end up with the protagonist dying and just the the whole atmosphere of it is is just it's difficult to say that i liked it just because of i i can understand where my wife is coming from because it it, it does have this this sort of really unsettling feeling of menace about it but it, it was very very effective for for what the the visual novel as a whole was trying to do yeah it sounds just, like I, thematically the music served the purpose of keeping that anxiety high to remind you of that gravity that was part of yeah, the narrative absolutely and it's it's quite hard to pin down exactly how it achieved that but it's it's sort of things like it used quite a lot of distorted sounds and mm. there were some tracks that sort of had um what sounded like am amplifiers slightly overloading in the background so there was sort of this crackle in the background and sort of uh, things that were slightly out of tune and so on like i say it wasn't a completely discordant soundtrack or anything but neither was it a particularly melodic soundtrack generally mm -hmm. but it, it just really emphasized that atmosphere and, and really complemented what was going on in the story really well so that, that was one thing I, I i particularly wanted to bring up it does sound to me and correct me if i'm wrong but kind of like the opposite of what i was talking about with okami like it doesn't sound to me like a soundtrack that you would particularly want to listen to outside of the context of the game no it absolutely sounds like it worked perfectly enhancing what the game wanted it to do but you wouldn't want to pop it on your ipod 
and listen to it while you were driving to work. Like it doesn't, it sounds like perfect background music, but not like listening to music. Yes, but at the same time, I'd also draw a distinction between that and what I think of as a, a sort of common Western approach to game music, which sure. is you think of what like the Jeremy Souls and uh, other people do in um, in sort of Western games these days, which is very much take a kind of movie like approach, which is again doing background music that you wouldn't necessarily want to listen to by itself, but. <laughs> I don't know, there was something very different about this that I, I think perhaps it was just something as simple as the instrumentation, so it wasn't just like a straight orchestral score or anything, there was a lot of electronic sounds and synthesised sounds in there that maybe made the difference and um, I will highlight there's, there's there's one track on the soundtrack that I, I will happily listen to and, and probably not coincidentally it's the one that, that goes along with the final battle of each route, because that is the most um, probably melodic of all of the um, of all of the tunes that are in there it's associated with the main character it's got his the- in fact it's, it's even named after the main character so that is the one track on that soundtrack that i will listen to repeatedly the rest of it maybe not but mm. yeah it's an interesting one regardless certainly Yeah, uh, I had another game listed too, worth mentioning, that kind of... It's not quite the same scenario, but um, I really like uh, Sting's Nights in the Nightmares soundtrack. I don't know if you've okay. ever had a chance to, to hear tracks no. from that. But, no, this um, isn't one I'm familiar with at all, so yeah, interested to hear more about it, certainly. So, so Nights in the Nightmare is one of the games out of Sting's Department, of, Department Heaven series of RPGs. The defining feature of the Department Heaven games is that they all take kind of classic genres and mash them up with other genres in, uni- in unique ways, and mm-hmm. so, the, so that the mechanics are very fresh. Um, Nights in the Nightmare specifically takes... Um, a uh, grid-based strategy RPG and meshes it up amazingly enough with um, vertical shooters. <laughs> so okay. so you're, you position your troops um, on the field and then they kind of stand stationary like like almost like in a tower defense kind of way and like right. the, and the enemies are also stationary and they emit the bullets and then you use the touch screen to maneuver a fairy around the bullets. And then when you move the fairy onto one of your units, she inhabits that unit and causes them to attack. Okay. So the soundtrack to Nights in the Nightmare um, toes a really interesting line between using many of the instrumentations and like kind of motifs and like fanfares you would expect from a medieval strategy game, but then also always tries to infuse it with like the hecticness that you would expect from a, a vertical shooter soundtrack. 
Okay. So everything moves very rhythmically and very hectically to kind of keep you under the impression that you need to always be moving, because this is also an arcade game about dodging bullets, but also it's medieval. So it has a medieval sound, and it's... And it has um, a lot of discordancy in the soundtrack, yeah. like notes you wouldn't expect that like bounce off each other in uncomfortable ways. And that all also ties into the overall theme of the game, which is that um, you're a Valkyrie and the units you recruit are the souls of the undead who've usually died um, in unfortunate ways. Like the whole game is just suffused with this extremely heavy blanket of sadness. Mm. which is in all of the tracks in a really all the musical tracks in a very interesting way so it's it's very discordant very strange and then when the triumphant tracks come in they like blow that sadness away and it's it's really emotional because the game itself is really emotional um my recommended track to look up on youtube is ultimate ratio regim um i listen to that on repeat sometimes for amounts of time that are probably unhealthy <laughs> um so yeah uh, nights in the nightmare um the, the nintendo ds is not a system that's usually celebrated for its sound and music because the audio output on the ds was terrible but um nights in the nightmare really stood out um i've never heard the psp version i don't know if it's different remixed or better in any way but i'm right. um, i'm sure the tracks are still relatively the same but yeah, that's a very strange game um, with a very bizarre musical profile that gives me the goosebump effect quite often. No, oh, that's cool. That's that's definitely one I've been meaning to check out for quite some time because like Dungeon Travelers Two and um, Hyper Devotion Noir were the two games that really sort of switched me on to Sting and what they were into with sort of interesting mechanics and that sort of thing so yeah definitely want to, to yeah they're they're a unique development house and um you know it's sad in a lot of ways because nowadays they pretty much just do contract work um yeah they, they don't really make their own games anymore but it's cool to hear you describe you know when we talked a long time ago about your experiences with dungeon travelers too like when you were, would tell me about the mechanics in the game i would always get really excited because i would be able to identify some of Sting's kind of rebellious instincts kind of sneaking their way into that contract work even possibly despite the publisher's best wishes like they've, <laughs> they've, they've got a really interesting way of playing with mechanics in unexpected ways oh yeah um, definitely and that and that doesn't just mean mechanics either like their their approach to art and visual presentation especially in their their own unique game the department heaven series uh unlike anything you've ever seen before their color their, their artists color choices very strange their approachment to user interface is very strange like, when they were at their peak they were such an experimental uh, design house and that's and the music their music is part and parcel of that yeah definitely i mean dungeon travelers 2 had a had a good soundtrack it's it, it's not one that i particularly associate with what we're talking about here but it definitely had a good soundtrack it had some really good battle themes for example mm-hmm. um so yeah uh, if, if if you've not played it then definitely play it it's one of the best dungeon crawlers out there
Anyway, um, I've got <laughs> I've got one more that I want to bring up. It's actually another Gust game or a, a Gust series, which is Art and Elico. Mm. Oh yeah, um, which I, I I think its soundtrack is is most interesting from the perspective of it's um, it's designed almost as part of the narrative, of, of as part of the world building. Because yeah. a significant proportion of each of the Art and Elico soundtracks are these uh, are these songs um, sung in this language called Hymnos, which is a, a fully functional language that they developed specifically for the series. I mean, it's it is a proper language you can you can go out and learn. There are resources online to learn how to speak Hymnos. Um, but the 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 songs in the Artanelica series always accompany sort of really significant plot moments and in narrative terms they are all um all of the songs are spells they're magic spells that these specific characters cast and so when one of these tracks comes in you know something serious is happening um but within that there's there's a whole lot of variety between them so there's some that are sort of what you might expect when you when you hear the word hymnos or song magic or something like that which is sort of big sort of choral works that are dramatic and overblown and that sort of thing but at the other end of the spectrum there's also some of these song magics that are very sort of electronic and technological and very distorted and that kind of thing so there's such a huge amount of variety in those and because each of these tracks is so tightly associated with a specific moment in the story like they're only used once throughout the story at these significant moments when that particular magic is cast yeah they they very much have have the effect we're talking about here where i can immediately associate them with the moment that was happening in the story at the time and yeah they're just massively powerful pieces of music yeah i, I listen to the art the soundtrack from artonelico 2 quite quite often and, and art the music in artonelico is one of the probably the soundtracks I would most suggest people listen to, even if they have zero interest in the game. Like, if, if, if Artanelico's specific like, waifu pursuit visual novel slash RPG design aesthetic is not, not something that appeals to you, I would encourage you to overlook your lack of interest in the game and at least look up some of the tracks on YouTube, because yes. uh, what they do, like, the, the series has one of the most unique sound profiles ever. Because even, you know, as you mentioned, some of the tracks take on a very strange, electronic, tinny, um, you know, some of the voices singing hymnals are just kind of like electric robot voices. But yeah. they have a unique way of me- of, me- of melding that robotic, electronic sound with a really human tenderness that's yeah. totally unexpected. Like, you would never really imagine that type of music specifically coming from a role-playing game like there's hints of techno with hints of church music and they come together in a way that's harmonious that is like beyond expectations yeah it's it, it it's a series that before i i played the first installment of i was completely unfamiliar with and there was a a friend i used to do a different podcast with he was obsessed with this series and it was, this was around the time that I was just sort of really getting into sort of my, my current interest with Japanese games and visual novels and so on. And I, I was just coming off the back of, I think, Neptunia Mark II or something like that. And he said, Pete, right, next thing you need to play is the entire Art and Latico series. I was like, okay. And he, he just sort of gave me a brief synopsis of it. And I thought, eh, sounds all right. 
halfway through the first one, I was like, yes! <laughs> I, I understand what you were talking about. Yeah, they're special games. The, the world is so special. I mean, like you said, they, they bothered to create a fully functional alternative language for use in the music. And, like, that level of, like, care and world building is not just in the music. It's in every aspect. Like, the visual design is wholly unique. The characters yes. are always fully fleshed out. Like, it's it's such a a fully built world and it's really yeah. actually a surprise to me that there's so few games in the series considering the level of work that was put into developing this mythos and this setting yeah definitely i mean it's it, it is a very detailed background and some of it just isn't even used directly in the games itself or, or not in a particularly obvious way anyway some of it is just sort of things that you might be able to read or sort of throwaway conversations you might have with npcs and so on but if, if you read up on the series online and sort of the the supporting material and stuff that they released alongside it there's there is so much to that world it is one of the most beautifully crafted worlds that i've i've experienced in gaming certainly yeah it's it, it just it seems always such a shame to me that we get what seems like 14 atelier games a year <laughs> but but no but Artonelico just like sits and rots and like the last Artonelico game was technically the Arno Surge and that was years ago and it was also not good um, yeah. it was just not good and it's depressing to me because Artonelico 1 and 2 I have such fond memory that being said what was good about Arno Surge was the soundtrack and I still have like the town theme from Arno Surge is beautiful and I listen to it mm. quite frequently so like, it's good to see that that at least has continued throughout the series yeah that's that's good definitely i did yeah art and other kind of particular is the one that really switched me on to to gust sound team um in particular so there are there are several sound teams who i will happily listen to the work of for hours on end and gust is one of them falcom's another one mm -hmm. but uh i mean that's probably a subject for another day isn't it so it, uh All right. Is there uh, any other stuff you want to bring up for this? Uh, not specifically. I had made note that I wanted to talk about Nier, um, mm -hmm. the, the original Nier. Um, but I don't think I can really talk to it to too much detail. Just the music is extremely emotional, and it ties into the plot beautifully. Um, yes. And and specifically any of the tracks related to Kaine. And um, like I've actually had to pull over <laughs> when because <laughs> like, I often drive with my iTunes with my iPod on shuffle, just like. Yeah, um, genre game music on shuffle and like I've been in like a bad point in my life and like had to pull over when like Kaine's theme accidentally popped up yeah because I, that game is just so emotional yeah I, I mean I've definitely had similar experiences I yeah for, for those who don't know I'm I'm a, a, a pianist I've been playing the piano since I was about five years old or so um I actually have the the piano score to near the officially arranged version so it's not like a straight transcript of the soundtrack or anything it's proper piano arrangements of, of most of the important tracks and yes there are certainly some of those that are quite difficult to get through without uh, without feeling things mm, so many things so <laughs> all many right things. 
Yes, okay, so before we get too emotional and, and need to hug each other, um, <laughs> let's, let's wrap that up there. So, uh, thanks very much for listening to us ramble on about all this stuff again. Uh, thank you, Chris, for joining me again. Uh, do you want to tell people where to find you on the internet and where to uh, hand over money for your lovely artwork oh, and, pixel art and that sort of thing? Always. So, uh, uh, as Pete mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my uh, my website is mrgilderpixels.com. That's M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R-P-I-X-E-L-S.com. And you can also find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram as Mr. Gilder Pixels. Um, looking forward to hearing from all of you. And, uh, you know, I like to get feedback on my artwork. Always looking for new inspiration. So don't be afraid to give me a shout lovely stuff and i imagine most of you listening to this have probably come here via moa gamer in the first place but just on the off chance you've discovered this through youtube or soundcloud um my website is moagamer.net where i post every weekday about japanese games and visual novels with a particular focus on uh, a single game or series each month at the time of recording the cover game for this month is galgun 2 hence the discussion about it earlier uh, so if you want to find out lots and lots more about that game then uh, drop by and check it out that's moagamer.net Okay, so that's it for this episode. We'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.